there. Welcome to Big Blend Radio with your hosts, Lisa and Nancy, editors of BigBlendMagazine.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Big Blend Radio's military show, where every first Monday we get to chat with Mike Guardia. Mike is an award-winning author, a military historian, and a U.S. Army veteran. But I swear, you know, he's been on our show for so many years. I think we knew him when he was a teenager, but it's not true. But, like, seriously. Uh, he was named Author of the Year in 2021 by the Military Writers Society of America. His latest books, and I mean, how many books now? Come on, you got to keep reminding me. I'm 25. Mm-hmm. I'm still stuck on 21 because I think I want to be 21. Um, anyway, so Mike is 25. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you can be 25 today. Um, his latest books are The Combat Diaries, True Stories from the Frontlines of World War II, and Coyote Recon, The Forgotten Wars of Colonel J.D. Vanderpool. You can go to his website, mikeguardia.com, go to Amazon, uh, his website, or go to Amazon Books, what, Bookshop org Barnes and Noble, you'll find his books there. But this is the one thing about Mike is he tells the stories of soldiers, men and women. Um, he tells the the story of actual, you know, fighter jets and how they came to be and how they've traveled around the world and been, you know, sold to one country after another. He tells the stories, and I think that's what's so great about him. And coming on the show today, we were supposed to talk about communication and battle in different, you know, armored vehicles and tanks and, and fighter jets and things like that. However, um, sadly, John Mecca has passed and John, uh, he's going to tell us about John is featured in his book, Days of Fury, Ghost Troop and the Battle of 73 Easting. And the book came out a few years ago, not that far ago, when, when Mike was um, 18, right? Mike, how, like, how, how young do you want to be today? Like, uh, you know what? I will be a good solid 21 today. I know 21's good. 21 is the best. Um, but yeah, John Mecca, this, this is sad. And, um, that's hard when you actually interview a veteran, right? And then right. how you find, yeah. So tell us about John. Okay. Well, it was only a few days ago that I, I had re- received the news of John Mecca's passing. And he passed away on the 10th of September. You know, it was mm. kind of a shock, but at the same time, kind of not. Um, we, we knew that he had been ill for a number of years. Um, but we, I think we collectively, um, thought that John still had a good many years left in him. Uh, you know, he, I think at this point, at the point that he had passed, he was defying a lot of the doctor's expectations. So, uh, uh, the news, while not necessarily surprising, it still hit a lot of us really hard. Um, John Mecca really, in a lot of ways, is, I think, the embodiment of uh, what the all-American spirit should be. Uh, he, was the, uh, he was the grandson of Italian immigrants, and you know, his, his lineage, if you look all the way back to the beginning of the 20th century, uh, it really was a testament to um, our nation being built by those who have immigrated here and those who assimilated and became part of the true melting pot um, because he had a very long lineage of military history in his family. Uh, for instance, his grandfather was a veteran of the First World War, 
um, had the unfortunate experience uh, to be hit by poisonous gas. Um, you know, of course, chemical warfare was a brand new thing at the time, and nobody truly knew how to harness it. And more to the point, I don't think anybody really knew just how dangerous and how devastating it could be. I mean, not that war is supposed to be a civilized pursuit at all, but, uh, you know, the brutality of these chemical weapons exceeded, I think, what uh, exceeded what anyone had expected. But luckily, Mecca's grandfather made a full recovery. Um, You know, his exposure to the gas just limited uh, itself to a temporary blindness that he was able to recover from. But still, that's freaky, man. It is very freaky. Uh, You know, and then uh, and then for some time after the war, uh, made his living off and actually made a very good living off of uh, of operating street kiosks in New York, in New York. And I think he also had a few in New Jersey as well. Um, And then, of course, uh, you know, the uh, and then, of course, the father's generation uh, served in World War II in Korea. And by the time John was born, you know, um, yeah, the, the long standing tradition of military service in his family was, you know, just something that he really felt compelled to do, not just in terms of it being a family tradition, but, uh, you know, he, uh, he, 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 he really firmly believed in the patriotic values that I think were more commonplace back then than they are today. And, uh, you know, just feeling that he had a debt to this country that he had to pay, you know, realizing that, you know, uh, in, in America, we have so many freedoms that the rest of the world doesn't have. We have so many luxuries really that the rest of the world doesn't have. It's very easy for us to take those things for granted. And, uh, you know, he wanted to pay it forward and, uh, you know, call himself a patriot in good conscience by actually wearing the uniform and writing that blank check out to Uncle Sam. You know, uh, John, he uh, was a teenager in the early 80s, so he was very much mm. a product of that time, you know, very much into Yay. music I'm and Sam's. And, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and uh, uh, you know, a lot of the, uh, a lot of the things that we, that we, we tend to associate with 80s pop culture. And, uh, you know, by the time he he decides to in, enroll in college, you know, it's very much the era of uh, Wall Street, very much mm-hmm. the era of excess, as they call it. And uh, decides, hey, you know what? I think uh, I think the time and the growth industry is such that business really seems to be a calling and a way for the future. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's what he uh, that's what he focuses his academics on. And uh, at the same time, he enrolls in the college ROTC program at Rutgers. And, you know, his his intent from the beginning really was to pursue an active duty commission. And as he spends more time in Army ROTC, he uh, takes a solid love affair with the concept of mechanized warfare and armored warfare in particular, because, you know, you have these massed maneuver formations who uh you know have achieved uh such great battlefield success shock effective maneuver you know hearkening back to the days of Patton and uh even even what was then the contemporary cold war you know the uh the mm. heavy emphasis on defeating the soviet threat was always concentrated uh, around the use of heavy armor formations uh just falls in love with the tank and everything that the tank can do and the other armored and mechanized vehicles that can support it, you know, he uh, is able to 
he's able to not only earn a commission as an armor officer, but, uh, you know, he's, he's graduating just in time for, um, what is the end of the Cold War. So he's able to see the frontier of democracy. He's able to serve along mm-hmm. the Iron Curtain in, in Germany. Wow. And, uh, you know, be a part of that footprint that we had in Western Europe, actually seeing what the Cold War mission was against the communists at the time before it all goes away. And it's wow. a very interesting time to be in the military, at least mm-hmm. from what all these veterans have told me, because, you know, they came up through the training uh, and they were taught to fear the Soviet menace that mm-hmm. uh, there was going to be another hot war, that World War Three was going to happen on the plains of Western Europe. And it was going to be decided if if the conflict was to be decided below the nuclear threshold. And it was definitely going to be decided by tanks and armored vehicles. You're going to have these battles that were happening in places like the Folda Gap and all along the inner German border. Uh, so he he took that as a gospel truth and said, okay, well, this is going to be uh, my life as a soldier. I'm going to be staring down the Soviets from across the Iron Curtain. And then wow. he's there not only two years before the first round of defense cuts are announced, uh, you know, um, detente has become a thing of the past. And now we're actively looking at an, uh, looking at a long lasting friendship with the Soviet Union. Meanwhile, Gorbachev Whoa. is pretty much cutting Eastern Europe loose. And, you know, here we are in n- November of 1989 and the unthinkable happens when the Berlin Wall collapses. Mm-hmm. And Germany is only a year away from reunification. David so, Hasselhoff did it, remember? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's uh it's not very it's uh it's not very hard to see that the Cold War mission, the thing that they've been trained to do for so long has now become a thing of the past and you know, a lot of people, John Mecca himself included are saying, you know, we really don't have a mission anymore. We uh we were trained yeah. By the Soviet Union. Now they're technically our friends. The Soviet Union itself is on its deathbed. It's probably not going to be around much longer. Who is there left to fight? Well, mm. you know, they, they, they're thinking to themselves, okay, well, we, we don't know who the next enemy is going to be. But as they're asking themselves this question, well, suddenly something comes out of left field that not a lot of people expected. Well, you have Saddam Hussein, uh, you know, this, you know, this, this little pissant, the third world dictator who just so happens to be in charge of the fourth largest army in the world. And uh, wow. he also that's a, yeah, there. you know what? You just put that in some context right there that I think right. people forgot yeah. about Saddam. Like the third, you, you don't think that because everyone always thinks America is the biggest, the greatest. And we've got France, we've got England, Germany, everybody on our side. Yeah. But that's what you just said. Third largest army. I think we huh. forgot that or we were hyper like freaked out on our TVs watching yeah. what was going on. Right. Yeah. Oh, right. And he, he also had the largest air force in the middle East. Eek. So, so we're like, okay, well, uh, you know, he has, uh, he has invaded this tiny little country called Kuwait. And, uh, you know, he has this mm-hmm. laundry list of justifications, none of which really make any sense. And, uh, you know, if we dig deep enough, we can see, okay, well, he's trying to, uh, he's trying to replenish the coffers of all the, uh, of all the money that he lost in that eight year war that he had with Iran. So, okay, well, if he is running roughshod over Kuwait and Kuwait collapses within a matter of hours, he now has 20% of the world's oil reserves under his orbit and he's massing his troops along the Saudi border. 
what is he going to do and how deep is this rabbit hole going to go if he storms across the border into Saudi Arabia? And, you know, we see Iraqi tanks, you know, storming the capital of Riyadh. So Saudi, uh, at least at the time, they were our closest ally in the Middle East. And, you know, you had the Prince of Saud saying, hey, uh, uh, please put something on the ground here to act as a deterrent in case this wacko neighbor I have next door you know, that decides to invade my country. And that was the start of Operation Desert Shield. And John, at this point, uh, I think was pretty much of the same mindset that most troopers in Western Europe were. At first, they said, okay, this is probably just another Arab conflict. You know, the Arabs are always fighting each other. They're always fighting somebody. It's, you know, some... uh, It's, you know, just some brush fire war that's going to happen. Uh, it maybe it'll burn out quickly, maybe not, but you know, whatever it is, that's, that is the Arabs problem. It has nothing to do with us. Um, but then very quickly thereafter, they start to realize, okay, well, Saddam's not backing down. The international community is, is, uh, solidly against what he's doing. And it seems that temperatures are starting to rise. And you even had George Bush getting on national TV and saying, hey, we're dealing with Hitler reincarnate here. Okay, well, mm-hmm. uh, if you're comparing him to the leader of the Third Reich, this really must be bad. And, you know, at that point, John, John, among many others, was starting to say, okay, well, you know, maybe there is going to be something more to this, but it's probably not going to involve our units specifically because our mission is to sit here and defend the Fulda Gap. Now, granted, by this time, Germany was well on the path to reunification, but, you know, there was a, a strong tide of belief that says, well, you know, second ACR has spent the better part of 40 years guarding the inner German border. We don't really maneuver as a unit and we haven't maneuvered as a unit really in the better part of a generation. We've become mostly a constabulary force. You know, we're doing these, we're, we're doing all these missions on the uh, border. We've become mostly a police work and intelligence agency than a pure maneuver unit like many of our comrades who are based mm-hmm. back in the U.S. are. Um, but at the same time, they're also telling themselves, okay, well, you know what? We're actually the biggest armor force that's closest to the theater, and Iraq has a very armor-heavy force. So chances are, whether we like it or not, we're going to be over there very soon. And then that order comes down. They're part of the, uh, they're part of the, um, secondary waves of what we're still calling Desert Shield at the time. And their order is to sit along the Saudi border. And still at this point, a lot of people are thinking that diplomacy is going to win the day, that simply the American presence there on the border is going to, uh, is going to make Saddam come to his senses, at least to the point where, you know, he is going to, entertain what the international community has to tell him. Um, but then it becomes very clear, okay, well, hey, we've drawn this line in the sand. You have until X date to get out of Kuwait or face ultimate destruction. And then when uh, Saddam just digs his heels in, they say, okay, well, you know, the time for diplomacy is over. Now Desert Shield becomes Desert Storm. We have the 30-day air war. And then now um, we're, we're rolling across the border from Saudi yeah. Arabia to Iraq and we are going to, uh, you know, we're going to meet whatever comes our way. And uh, John and many of his contemporaries are thinking, okay, well, as soon as we cross the border, we're going to be in heavy enemy contact. It's going to be hell on earth. It's going to be uh, all these uh, all these great tank battles in the style of the Battle of Kursk, you know, where you 
you know, where you have these uh, massive formations of, uh, of, of Axis and armored units maneuvering against each other. But for the first day, they hardly saw any contact at all. In fact, most units along the uh, along the Seventh Corps front that first day didn't receive any enemy contact, and they're all thinking to themselves, "Okay, well, where the hell is the enemy?" And then you go into the second day; that's when they're running into a lot of these frontline formations that uh, are just horribly, horribly under-equipped. They are underfed. Mm. Some of these soldiers don't even have shoes. I mean, these are the these are the so-called wow. trash formations that Saddam put in front to be a speed bump. And these guys were desperate to surrender. I mean, they were surrendering in droves saying, you know, hey, please feed us. We're hungry. We have no love for Saddam. We're Sounds like Russia to... now. Right, it does. Exactly. It, it does sound like Russia right, Russia right now. Yeah. I mean, and, there's uh, people saying, screw you, to Putin and saying, we're not going to fight against Ukraine. You know, yeah. it kind of yeah. sounds the same in a way. It really does. And, you know, it, 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 they find themselves in a situation where, where they're like, okay, well, you know, these, we're having to, we're having to, uh, we're having to process all of these enemy prisoners of war because we don't know what else to do. And, uh, wow. you know, the only enemy contact they're getting there are, you know, some of these Iraqis who say, well, you know, well, th- they'll fire off a few shots before they uh, throw their guns down and surrender. And they tell the Americans when they encounter them, you know, they're like, well, hey, you know, we, we, knew, we knew that we didn't stand a chance. We have no love for Saddam, but we we felt compelled to fire off a few rounds just for mm-hmm. sake of defending our homeland. You know, um, you know, can you please go on to Baghdad and end this, you know, essentially? Uh, you know, then of course, uh, the story starts to change drastically on the third day where they, uh, shift, um, slowly towards the Southeast and they run right into the teeth of the Republican Guard. Now, the, the, uh, the frontline formations were, you know, were the conscripts who were not well equipped, not well motivated, but the Republican Guard was a different story. Uh, these were the these were the best and brightest of the Iraqi armed forces. They were fiercely loyal to Saddam. They had all of the best training. They had all of the best equipment. And uh, on paper, anyway, they looked like they were the best capable force to try to take on the Americans. And uh, what happened all along that uh, all along that Seventh Corps front, particularly in uh, in in uh, John Mecca's sector of the battlefield, was uh, you, you know the the U.S. was just tearing these Iraqi armored units mm-hmm. apart left and right um, in Eagle troop sector, for example, you know, uh, the Americans were, uh, were opening fire with uh, such speed and such accuracy that a lot of the Iraqis initially thought that they were under attack from allied aircraft. This and, is crazy. Uh, yeah. This is like a crazy story. Like I'm, I'm, I'm remembering things in, I, I'm remembering it, you know, happening, you know, mm-hmm. when I just want to kind of step back again, go back to Kuwait. Like when we lived in South Africa, I was, you know, going through high school and stuff. And I don't want to put, I'm, I'm 21, everyone too. I claim <laughs> 21, but I remember like we used to always say, well, it's not as bad as if you were, you know, stuck in a concentration camp in Kuwait without money for cigarettes or beer. That was the teenager thing that was, a, that we'd always say. When I was in high school. So that had to have been, that was going on. I mean, we were aware of this stuff in Africa, right? Like in South Africa, we knew this stuff was going down. Obviously, you know, South Africa's not that far from there. And so it was really real. And then when we got over here and then lived, I think you were on our show when we were in 29 Palms during COVID talking mm-hmm. about Days of Fury, right? 
and living amongst people who had really fought. They have murals um, dedicated um, to those who they tore down. They got them. They're the ones. It was the 29 Palms guys, right, that got them. Did did I skip over? I went too fast. I got excited about it. It's kind of crazy when I think about this, how he... I mean, when you look at Saddam Hussein, doesn't he look like a madman to you when you look at his yeah. pictures? Mm-hmm. He used to have short hair at one time, almost like a Hitler mustache. When you brought up Hitler, yeah. I, I went, oh, my God, he has a Hitler mustache. And I just go, I had to go and Google him while you're talking to look at his face again, which I don't want to. Mm-hmm. And then I went, oh, my God, he looks really crazy wild, he, yeah, like yeah. crazy wild. And actually, I think Mel Gibson could, I hate to say that because he did Helm more, right? Right. But I think he could play him in a movie. I hate to say it, but I was just looking at it going, wow, because of the beard and everything. But Saddam Hussein looked like, would you say that, like, there was a duplication of people, (laughs) you know what I mean? Of this kind of wild, crazy, how how did he do that? How did he get to such power because he looked like a lunatic to me when when i look at him and everything he's done it's the same thing as hitler how did they get they were smart even though they're horrible people they were smart how did they win over that like well you know they were able to take advantage of very chaotic situations they uh they were able to uh, come to power at a time when either the country was suffering from very low self-esteem and they needed somebody to tell them what they wanted to hear, or it was a time of transition where the transitional leadership was weak and they come in and they offer things and they, they promote certain policies that get people on their side. You know, um, in the case of Saddam Hussein, you know, he started off as, uh, you know, as the, uh, as the understudy, so to speak, for the president Hassan al-Bakar. Um, but, uh, you know, as al-Bakar's mm. health started to deteriorate, um, you know, Saddam pretty much, uh, took control of oh. the country. He became the de facto leader, you know, while, uh, technically the man he worked for was alien and, uh, and uh, on, on his deathbed. Uh, you know, and then of wow. course, with Saddam in charge, he starts promoting a lot of popular agendas that uh, are very popular with the growing s- s- secular Muslim community. Uh, for instance, um, a lot of people tend to forget that uh, Saddam Hussein was a big champion of women's equality, and also he he also promoted women's literacy. There's this good PR photo of him, and I oh, say wow. not in the sense that the photo itself is good; it was just manipulated to give him a positive image. Uh, you know, it, I, I think it was like 1974 ish. Um, it's, it's a young Saddam and he is, uh, sitting in the middle of a group of, it has to be at least two dozen women and they're like standing on these bleachers and, uh, none of them are wearing head covers. None of them are mm. wearing the hijab. Um, and wow. uh, they, they're all dressed in what are obviously Western style dresses and they're all reading books. And the caption underneath said words to the effect of, you know, this is the man who promotes literacy among all Arabs, whether they're male or female. And, uh, you, you know, that that gains a lot of traction, not only in Iraq, but it also uh, helps develop good ties across the pan-Arab world. West, and and yeah. over to the Western U.S. Right. And, you know, this 
This is why uh, Sanam is able to uh, garner some good ties, you know, with wow. Nasser in Egypt and, uh, you know, and a lot of other prominent leaders in the Arab Holy world. Holy cow. So, yeah. Well, cause I mean, he was a big name and it was weird because now that I'm thinking back to even just being a kid, right. I'm like, uh-huh. Oh my God, there was like a mixed bag with him. Uh-huh. So he, he, he ran around and had this dual thing going on. Yeah. So women and oh my gosh, he's, you know what? It's so true. This is, this is the truth about people like him that, you know, you, you could be going, Oh, Oh, you can trust this guy and he's the mayor or whatever, right? Or the preacher, right? Or whatever, the, the high muckety muck of town. And you go there, he goes, Oh yeah, I love women. I'll do anything, for, you know. And then you find out that he's really the shyster of it all, right? He's like, Oh, I love women and that way. But you know what I mean? He's not, he's using it and, and not really pro women in, in the way we want people to be. Mm-hmm. he's that kind, but he's doing it on a massive level, like a massive. Can't, so he was doing this. So do you think as a kid, he kind of like as a teenager, he knew what he was going for. Like he was waiting for that guy to be on his deathbed pretty much. Do you think? Well, uh, the president, I shouldn't say that guy, well, but not, you know, well, not specifically uh, targeting Al-Bakar, but uh, he, he, he wanted power. Opportunist. Yeah. He was an opportunist from a very early age. Yeah. Wow. Wow. I didn't know that. Like, I think it's just weird when you're, you know, sometimes do you, I mean, is that for you as a writer? I mean, we're revisiting, you know, days of fury and it was weird when we did that. I remember being like, dude, we're in the town, you know, the guys who took down Saddam Hussein and they carried his statue across town or whatever. And, um, you know, there's murals painted and all that stuff, but, um, I, you know, do you think when you write a book, when you look at, you start to really formulate who these people are, that you get a clear view. But when you're living in the midst of this, like, you know, Saddam Hussein was a big deal for me growing up. It was always in the news when we went from South Africa and then coming over here. And then in South Africa, we're going, holy crap, things are really getting weird, you know, and, and to come over, come home. And, and even now, like, we're only now actually getting to the truth of what went down when Nancy and I had to leave, you know, because of, of political stuff. And, um, no, and we're not, you know, pro apartheid, everybody just, I'm so sick of that. I'm so sick of people looking at us going, you're white, you're anti-black and it's so not true at all. Um, <clears throat> there was so many different things happening in Africa, not just in South Africa and Kenya was huge. Kenya played a weird role, I think, in so many battles and it was kind of closed. I, I don't know. Stuff went down in Kenya, I think, more than people ever realized. Like, I don't know if it was just a country that had so many resources that so many different countries did land grabs and resource grabs or what was going on, but that country had stuff going down in regards to the Middle East. And maybe because it was in the East, I don't know. But there was stuff in that country that I didn't feel, and I don't know because I'm not a historian like you, like South Africa was bad and, and they were, I mean, like badass, not bad, but they were close with Israel big time. But I felt like Kenya, like even when Nancy and I have conversations about, we're always like, Kenya stuff was going down there that people didn't know about. There was always something. There was, I, I think you could get away with it. On all sides, all fronts, things were going on. CIA, all of it, you know? 
there was, I don't know, what did Kenya ever come up in regards to Saddam Hussein and, and all of that kind of era, or is it just me thinking the wrong well, thing? <laughs> no, well, I, I mean, it, it, uh, it all ties together in, uh, that era. I, I think, I think most historians would call it post-colonialism. Um, you mm. know, where a lot of the European powers are starting to retreat from Africa. They're starting to retreat from their territorial possessions in, in the Middle East. You know, um, you know, this is right around the time, I guess, it, I mean, if we're, if we're looking at the whole 20th century, you know, where we ha- have the British retreat from India, the British have given up Egypt. Uh, the British have carved up the borders between, you know, Iraq, Iran, and the United Arab Emirates and whatnot. And the Palestinian mandate is now becoming Israel. And, uh, you know, all of the, all of the major, um, European nations are, are withdrawing from their colonial possessions in Africa. So you have this big shift of what has been, uh, well, I can always say decades on end of colonialism. I mean, you know, the British in India, they were there for 400 years. And, uh, now, now that the, uh, now that the occupying powers, so to speak, have left, you know, you have, uh, an enormous amount of growing pains because people are trying to find their own identity within the context of, okay, well, we're this independent country now, but we've been occupied for so long. How do we really know who we are? You know, do we have an identity? And, you know, the growing pains associated with trying to find out who and what that is and who to gravitate mm. towards. Mm. So I want to go back to the ghost troop. Can you tell everybody who the ghost troop yeah. what, what that was about? Because yeah. I mean that's the, the Days of Fury Ghost Troop and the Battle of Seventy Three Easting. It sounds like we're downtown London in England. <laughs> right, <laughs> yeah. doesn't it? It sounds and when you by the way, when you brought up Wall Street, I for as soon as you said that I saw Michael Douglas in my head. You yeah. know, that's how like yeah, that's my era. <laughs> Just saying we had the better movies of everybody. But anyway, sorry. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Ghost Troop is, um, so for any number of listeners out there, uh, when I talk about a troop unit, that is, that is the, that is a unit that is equivalent in size to a company in any one of your standard units. Now, mm-hmm. you have these armored cavalry, um, units and they, and they have different names to describe their organizations. In a regular, in a regular ground unit, you have, um, you you have units that are descendingly that that are descendingly divided into uh in two brigades and battalions and companies but in the cavalry units they are descended they're descendingly organized into what we call regiments squadrons mm. troops so troop is the equivalent to a company sized unit and uh typically you identify your you identify your company sized units by letters and each letter typically carries the designation of whatever the whatever the nato phonetic alphabet is you know so like the a- company b the b- right, exactly. the, what is it the big what what's that song the, oh my gosh Google, Google the company b, company b. The, yeah the big yeah. boy of company b yeah. nancy's singing in the background now uh-huh. so, yeah. sorry but when you say i didn't know that so no i'm sorry i didn't mean to interrupt but like no, yeah no. so that's something we can kind of identify with is mm-hmm. yeah the beagle yeah. boy of company b yeah the so, andrew sisters mm-hmm. yeah 
yeah so if you have company b then then uh you would also refer to that as bravo company and then, oh. then of course company c would be charlie company and you know you would go on down the list um until you get to presumably what would be the last what, what would be the last letter of the alphabet um, but here in the Second Armored Cavalry Regiment, you had troops that were identified by letters. But instead of using the regular NATO phonetic alphabet, Alpha Bravo Charlie, they would have their own made-up designations. And uh, you know, so they were. So if you had, uh, if you had, if you had G Company or G Troop, instead of it, uh, instead of it just being, uh, instead of it just being Gulf Troop, which is what the corresponding NATO phonetic. Um, phonetic designator is they would say okay well we're going to make it something uh we're going to make it something unique we're going to make it something cool and something that has a lot of flair to it so why don't we call it ghost troop yeah yeah ghost troop sounds good we'll use that and uh that became the official designator and uh yeah it continued wow. on for several years after that so that's why they called it ghost troop and within in, within each of these armored cavalry troops You'll have two tank platoons. Uh, you know, each of them have four M1 Abrams tanks. And then in the scout platoons, you'll have six M2 Bradley fighting vehicles. And, uh, these, uh, these two platoons pretty much work together in tandem as what we call hunter killer teams to where the Bradleys are the ones who are, uh, the eyes for the tanks. They're scouting out. They're the hunters. And then the tanks come in as the killers and you have wow. the combined arms effect that way. Uh, so, you know, naturally speaking, because we knew that Desert Storm was going to be a large scale maneuver based conflict, we wanted those cavalry formations out in front to where theoretically you had units like Second Cavalry who could use those hunter killer teams to hold and fix the enemy in place while the follow on maneuver units could then close with and destroy, you know, the enemy from either the flanks or wow. you know, just, just using whatever pass through techniques they could. So this is a basic search and destroy, you yeah, know, um, sure is. This. so, so when, when you think about this is who they are as ghost troops. So you basically, you renaming a hurricane, yeah. right? We're, we're going to go rogue on the hurricane names and do our own thing. Yeah. So when, when, okay. So that happens, but now how does this work in regards to, um, so this ghost troop now has this name. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm going to ask a really dumb question because I get okay. to, I, you know, all right. So how do you get the tanks over there? Like, like, yeah, did so, you have um, the tank? You know what I mean? Cause I know this is a tank troop and general mm-hmm. Patton, obviously I think that's part of the connection to 29 bombs, right? Is Patton yeah, did a lot of his troops. maneuvers. Mm-hmm. Out there in Mojave Desert, he used it. Um, I mean, there's even in the Mojave National Preserve, he's got uh, places where you can named after him and stuff too, where yeah, he did his maneuvers. But, cargo ships that'll do it. Yeah, so so they go out, so they ship them off. They mm-hmm. off to Boston. Now mm-hmm. they ship off the. Um, I got that song in my head now. Um, they they send a bunch of tanks over. Mm-hmm. To Iraq, like literally send them over yeah. in a ship and you're hoping to hell that Iraq doesn't just blow you up when you're doing it. Well, I mean, I mean they don't have the capacity per se to send submarines out there um, to intercept these ships. 
Uh, but you have these uh, ships that will come into the ports of Saudi Arabia, and then uh, the troops themselves fly over, and uh, they'll land at a at a Saudi Arabian terminal, and then they'll go to the port to meet their they they, they will go to the port to meet their tanks coming off the ships. Holy cow! This is like the Normandy landing in a weird way, right? You know, like. We're just going to come in and we're going to bring our, our tanks off the ship, roll on in, and then come after you. Like, that's kind of crazy when you think about it. Like, I would be on, I would be on edge if I was the tank person doing that. What, 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 I mean, can, they didn't, did they ever attack people coming in with the tanks? Like, try to stop, like, the ships coming in? I mean, did that ever happen or were they were going in territory that was okay? Yeah, they, I... they were all coming into territory that was okay. Um, so at this point, okay. the, the Iraqi army had stopped at the Saudi border and uh, they uh, and all of the allied equipment was coming into the port of Dharan, which was still safe mm-hmm. territory. And uh, the American okay. troops were landing also at a safe airstrip. So where they could... They could get off the plane, meet their tanks that were coming in from the boat, and uh, then take their tanks to the Saudi border where they would uh, sit and hold and, you know, await for their next orders. Search and destroy. Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. wow. So Ghost Troop is there. And then what's the 73 Easting? Tell everybody about that. Yeah. So when you are fighting in a featureless desert and uh, there are no identifiable, there are no identifiable identifiable landmarks anywhere around uh pretty much the only way you can uh, the only way that you can identify a spot on the battle or even identify a spot on the map is you have to use a system of military grid lines so for your standard military map you have the north south lines and you call those eastings well if you're going out in the middle of a flat featureless desert you know you're able to track your movement by all of those grid lines on a map so if you have the Battle of 73 Easting, because you're in the middle of a desert, you don't have really anything else to designate the battle by a particular name. Uh, you just say where mm. it was on the grid line that you were when you started engaging contacts. So as they're moving across where their map reference points are, they're like, okay, this is the 7-1 Easting, this is the 7-2 Easting, and then, okay, now we're making contact here at 73 Easting. So when when you go through you know, boot camp and everything, are they teaching you that? Like, all of these things that you're teaching us every month? Like, or do you just, like, you know, because there's the physical stuff you have to do and, and you know, the armor and the tanks and all this stuff. But, I mean, does it just happen, like, as you go, or do you learn everything and then you go? No, you learn a... You end up learning a base of information when you're in boot camp or when, when you're in basic training, uh, they teach you as much as you can to get a firm grasp on the basics. Uh, you know, from what I recall, we did do map reading and we did do basic land navigation and orienteering, but I don't recall them ever telling us specifically what an Easting or a Northing was. We just had to learn our grid zone identifiers. We had to learn how to use a uh, protractor to find an eight-digit grid reference point on a map. Uh, If we did talk about Eastings or Northings, I don't remember it, but I do remember hearing it, you know, specifically when 
I got to my unit. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you even brought up a protractor. Now, who knows how, what that is anymore, right? And I mean, in school, we, had, we used to have to have them and, you know, be able to, you know, do the circumference and all of that. And I don't think protractors are even used anymore. Are we all using phones now and, and GPS? I guess. So they're, yeah, I suppose. But no, but it's, I mean, it's interesting to me. I mean, what, you know, you go out there and it's like, because at some point you can't learn everything and then go out and hope, because there's like that weird balance between, it's even as a musician, right? You can't sit and rehearse yourself to death. You need to get out there. And that's right. your quickest rehearsal. So is that that balance, like you're, you're saying, in a way, like you learn your basics and then out you go. And then you're going to start learning right away. And if we're in a war, don't things speed up a little bit too? If you're, we're in war, it's like, Oops. yeah, get out there, you know? <laughs> yeah. A little bit of a, um, like a little movement. You have to go faster, you know, mm-hmm. if we're in that mode. Wow. Wow, a lot of lot of lessons learned today, Mike. This is crazy, though. When I think when I think about the Iraq, well, I always say the Iraq War, and it's not like you were talking. There's different names for the Gulf War as mm-hmm. we've been going through, so that's interesting too, because it just kept growing. And and don't you feel like that's what the same thing with Ukraine now? You know that it's just kind of yeah. growing into one bigger war or like, I don't know. I remember talking about the Ukraine war with you two years ago. Is it two years? Has it been two years? What's going on now? Holy cow. Almost. Wow. And we didn't know. Remember? And uh, talking about ghosts. Remember the ghost pilot? Yeah. That was, yeah. Wow. Wow. It's amazing. And now they're going to use nuclear energy right after like, you know, everything after Chernobyl. Mm -hmm. Here they are going to, they, but they need it. They need it. You know, um, do you find that like interesting when you look at wars and history? Do you find common threads between wars about how things happen when you're writing books and, you know, telling everyone stories? Cause you have to get like this battle happened. Are you finding that like these commonalities, like, okay, Ukraine's possibly following the same things as the Gulf War, you know, or no? Do you think it's just everything is different? Well, you know, there are a few common bonds that tie these wars together. You know, you see a lot of these same stories get repeated. And it, it's not that history itself is, is, uh, it's really not that cyclic. Uh, and it's not that history really repeats itself. It's just that mm-hmm. people don't change, you know, people. Right cling to a lot of the same patterns of bad decision-making. And, you know, what, what I've seen throughout any number of these wars, you know, you'll have common parts of the story that always tend to crop up, you know, somebody's ego gets out of hand, somebody's temper flares, uh, somebody has the chance to step back from the precipice and they don't do it. Um, bad intelligence can take a very well-planned operation and turn it into uh, a disaster. Um you know, you'll have common threads of, you know, the underdog who everybody was going to uh, count out before the first round was over, make it not only to the end of the fight, but have a uh, pretty strong showing uh, on every measurable level. You know, uh, mm-hmm. there are there are a lot of those commonalities that you find throughout every war that's been fought. And, you know, 
one of the most interesting things that I've found is that, you know, the postmortems for all of these conflicts, they take a number of divergent paths. And I found that the smaller the conflict, actually, the, the, the smaller the conflict and the less public support that it has, the more divergent the postmortem narratives tend to be. Because, you know, if you ask any number of people out there, I guarantee you 90% of them at least, at least will tell you, yes, World War II was a good and it was a necessary war because Hitler had to be stopped and, you know, the Axis had to be defeated. And you don't see many variations in that narrative. Uh, but when you talk about Desert Storm, well, yeah, it becomes a uh, very hotly contested topic it doesn't even have mm. to be a short conflict like uh, it doesn't have to be a, a short conflict like Desert Storm. You know, we have the war in Vietnam that historians are still debating over today. You know, you see the same things for those interludes we had in Grenada and in Panama. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, people still jawbone about whether it was the right thing to do versus the wrong thing. Um, you know, the Brits, I think, are still uh, they, there's still a rift of whether or not. Uh, they thought the Falklands War was a good idea or, you know, whether it was Argentinian territory to begin with or whatever. Uh, but, you know, it, it's uh, it, that, that's that been the most interesting thing that I've noticed. It's just all the divergent paths that people take when they're trying to uh, figure out what went wrong and uh, where do you go hmm. when the war is over. I think, you know, studying history is so huge. And, uh, you know, Nancy and I always talk about this, how you – you know, we'll, we'll throw this out and you, you have an answer. And I'm like, what? How do you know this little thing here over there in that page? You know, you'll read something and go, what is that? And then call Mike. He knows. And it's probably written about it. You know, it's, um, I think it's fascinating. It's the study of people in a way, history, you know, because it is people are the ones doing the battles and it, it is. It's a study of people, which is fascinating. It's just it always is. And hopefully, we learn from battles and some battles don't even I mean, I think people forget about the Korean war and they just put it like, Oh, it was a skirmish and part of Vietnam. You know, there's yeah. just, it's, uh... it. that's what Nancy always talks about is the Korean war. It's like everyone forgets about it, you know, and yeah. even world war one is forgotten about a lot, right? That's kind of weird. We always look at world war two a lot, right. but world war one was supposed to be the one and only, right? Oh yeah, and we had two. The, uh, yeah, there was going to be the uh, wars and all wars. Yeah. So. Oh well. Yeah. Well, thank you again, Mike. Always a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you for my you. history lesson and and for I know a lot of audience too. They're always learning stuff and thinking of you know thinking of you know things that maybe we didn't think about and. Now I hope I don't have nightmares of Saddam Hussein and Bin Laden. God, they, you know, Bin Laden too, man. That was, at least we got him though, right? Yeah. You know? Right. He nailed that. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. You know, we can get as mad as we want politically, right? But um, mm-hmm. the military did do that. They went and got him. Like, I yeah. don't care who, what, and where. They they got him. Mm-hmm. And um, and people are, are contesting that too, right? And But I go like, he was not a good man. You know, Bin Laden was not a good human being. He, like, Saddam Hussein was not a good human being. Neither one were. And when I hear people start to contest that, I'm like, you've got to get a grip. I don't know. That's just me. 
I just, no, not a good person. That guy needed to go. And I don't, didn't he order Domino's or something? Was, am I nuts that he ordered pizza or something from his kid? He loved Doritos. Yeah. Oh, it said Doritos. It was oh, Doritos. Oh, yeah. He was a huge Dorito hound. So he's all chemical. I said that point. <laughs> he had he had those Dorito fingers, right? Like we uh-huh. had with Cheetos. Yeah. Oh my god! Oh my god! All right. So everyone, the Combat Diaries: True Stories from the Front Lines of World War II, and also the book Coyote Recon: The Forgotten Wars of Colonel J. D. Vanderpool. That is a badass book. Um, both of them are. You've got to go get them. Um, and then also, you know, as we were talking today, Days of Fury, Ghost Troop, and the Battle of 73 Easting. Check it out. Go to MikeGuardia.com. He's here every first Monday. And I think it's really interesting uh, in closing about John Mecca. Isn't it kind of wild that he died the day before September 11th? Like, yeah. it kind of feels weird, doesn't it? Like, mm-hmm. yeah, that's interesting. It's like one of those things like John Adams and uh, Thomas Jefferson dying on the mm-hmm. same day like one of those weird things you know i thought that was weird like i still think it's like a whole group of interesting things but thank you all for joining us thank you mike uh, we're here at bigblendradio.com all righty thank you lisa always a pleasure to be on the show